As we come back this morning, we continue to look at Acts. We are in Acts chapter 2. Last week we talked about Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit that was supposed to draw our eyes and our thoughts and our hearts back to all of the covenant promises made by God and where he manifested himself as that great fire. And so we go back to Abraham and the pot and the flaming torch that passed between the animals. We go to Mount Sinai and we reflected on the fact that, that the days, it's about roughly 50 days from Passover to the Feast of Pentecost of first fruits, which not surprisingly, because God does have a rhythm to things, not a magical number thing, but certainly a rhythm to things that we're 50 days on now, which is the same time it took for the children of Israel to cross the Red, uh, to get all the way from Egypt to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And of course, God manifests himself in such great power uh, and flame on Mount Sinai. Then the Shekinah glory as it entered the temple, the great rushing wind the fire, the presence of God. This morning we're going to talk about the response to what happens when these people filled with the Spirit pour out into the streets and begin to communicate the good news of the gospel and the miracle of that day as they communicate to each one in their own language, in their own unique uh, dialects. We're going to think about the power of that. But before we go to prayer, I want to think about how this image of the Spirit dwelling over each individual in the upper room and the presence of the Spirit, not the flame, but the presence hovering over each one and to begin to reflect back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, where it is the Spirit who hovers over creation, who's about to bring order out of chaos, to bring definition and distinction and diversity and richness and beauty to all that is formless and void. And how is it that the Spirit over each one of us begins to work in us, not to create sameness, but to take us from that, un that general sense of void, general sense of darkness and chaos, and make in each one of us the unique, beautiful creation that we are called to be as those reborn, those made new in Christ. Before we get much further, let's uh, open the text. Acts chapter 2. We're reflecting uh, specifically on the latter half of uh, the verses before Peter's address, but we'll go ahead and read 1 through 13. Hear now God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not these men uh, who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that they each uh, that each of us hears them in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Really? I even practiced. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you created us in your image we are thankful that we have the ability to participate in divine counsel, to hear the truth of what you are doing, to ask you the questions, what it means, and to, in your own way, instruct and lead us, which is what we ask now in the midst of the preaching of the word, that you might lead us and teach us. And whatever is said this morning that is not of you, that is not true, may those words quickly be forgotten in Christ's name. Amen. So what does it mean? Right, that's the, the title of the sermon. Sometimes I pay attention to that. What does it mean? And that's the question. They, this amazing event, the, the sound of the Spirit coming into the house was clearly not an isolated sound. Right, it was enough to cause folks to come out of their homes and to investigate what this sound, uh, where it came from, what it meant, what it happened so they come out and there are five words for very strong emotions in these verses stretching from roughly uh, 5 through 13. Five very strong emotional reaction words. Four of them in amazement, uh, positive reactions, bewilderment. One negative, which is scoffing. But there's clearly no neutral response to what happens. The spirit comes out. It makes a physical manifestation of itself by the wind moving in such a way that it is described as violent. And then materially, practically, people come out and start speaking in dialects that everybody can understand as these Jews who some of them were residents, some of them were probably there for the feast were in Jerusalem, they heard things in their native language. So what does it mean? Well, I'm going to present to you this morning that it's an end of chaos, unity and diversity, and our lives become a translation. Our lives become the translation. So first of all, it means end to chaos brought about by sin. Right in the beginning, the earth is firm, formless and void. It's not that there is sin there, but it is without, without structure. It is without uh, definition. And then the creative process, God speaks and the spirit moves in such a way that order is brought out of chaos. And that you have structure and form to the universe, which we see around us. And there is structure and form to the very creation that you and I stand on. And the eye 
thing is that most of it isn't actually there, right? I mean, I love physics where you find out that most of space is empty space because there's all this room between atoms. Yet nonetheless, all of that reality still gives us something to hold on to that's firm, that is true, that has structure and form, that is incredibly reliable. But when sin was uh, brought into the world, one of the things that was lost very quickly was any sense of reliability in one another, right? Adam and Eve throw each other under the bus. They try and throw God under the bus. You can no longer trust the other person and their motives. There is chaos in human relationships because now I have to protect myself against you and I have to get what you have before you take what I have, whether that's emotional or spiritual or physical or material. In one way or another, I take and I get you to give me. And that is just the tragic reality of what happens in the chaos of sin when we try and be our own gods. And Genesis and all of Scripture unpacks for us what happens in the chaos of sin. And the absence of the spirit in our ability to be with God, to walk with him in the cool of the day, to be at peace with him. And so there's no small imagery here of now the spirit hovering over God's people, who is now going to bring order out of chaos, who is going to, in ever greater degrees, drive the implications of sin and death from this world through their own actions. Not ultimate victory, that's left for Jesus. But the idea that somehow chaos was going to reign is removed because the Spirit is present again. Now we know because God is a God of process that the Spirit being present doesn't instantly mean that everything's going to be fine. You get at least six days of creation and we could have fun conversations about how long those days are. But what we do know is that it was more than one day. That is to say, for whatever reason, we know God is a God of process. He delights to work against chaos in his own time and in his own way as an artist, as a creator, as a craftsman. And so the fact that the Spirit is hovering over us, that chaos doesn't instantly in all of its forms disappear because of sin, shouldn't surprise us if we've read our scriptures. But what it does promise is new creation and a new humanity bound together by the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit being poured out mean? It means that there is a new humanity, a new creation, things that have not existed before in the same way. It is what the Old Testament saints looked forward to. But we now live in a time where there is peace with God in a way that the Old Testament saints couldn't have possibly imagined even as they knew the presence of the Spirit, even as the Spirit inspired them to do amazing things in the writing of the Psalms and Scripture, those moments where they felt so close to God in the temple, and yet there was always that barrier. You couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. You couldn't get into where the flame was. You couldn't get in to the seat, to the throne room. The Ark of the Covenant was behind one barrier after another. And we know that what happens in Pentecost is a fulfilling of what was shown through the ripping of the temple cloth, the great barrier between the holy and the holy of holies. And that imagery now becomes even more powerful because the spirit that was in there is now in here. No barrier. That's an opportunity for a new humanity. 
It's an opportunity for order to be brought out of the chaos brought by sin and death. It also means unity in diversity. Creation takes something that is formless and void, i.e. one lump, and makes distinct things out of it. Right, so whatever this Holy Spirit pouring thing out means, it clearly doesn't mean a flattening of humanity into one culture, one character, one language, one nature. The interesting thing is if you think about it, and I hadn't, but then some scholars did and I read them. If you think about it, we didn't need, they didn't need the, the gift of tongues. Right? Because all of those Jews functioning in Jerusalem knew many languages, including Greek and Aramaic. There was no reason why they couldn't have understood in the common tongues those things that were being preached. There's no actual reason for it as far as a necessity so that people would actually understand what Peter and the apostles were saying. There was enough common language present that they could have communicated what was happening. And yet the delight of God is to, in each one's unique language and dialect, in their mother tongue, where they grew up, the language that grandma and grandpa spoke, the language they spoke when they lived in their home village, before they moved to Jerusalem, before they needed to learn Greek and Latin and Aramaic just to get by, they had a mother tongue. And in the beauty of God, in this new creation, instead of one language dominating all people, there is a recognition of the uniqueness of each person. And so they hear the gospel in their mother tongue, in their own language. God delights to invest in each one. The amazement is not that they can understand Greek and Hebrew, Aramaic, or Latin. The amazement is those wonderful dialects, colloquialisms, ways of expressing things, they heard it in their own language. And therefore, when they say, aren't these Galileans, it's not a disrespect to whether or not Galileans knew languages. It was the fact that, well, how would a Galilean know my distinct dialect? How would they know what we used to speak in Phrygia in those days when we would gather around the fire? So there is a unity by one spirit. But at the same time, that does not squish the uniqueness only God can hold those things in tension. Humanity has a tendency to think that the way you eliminate chaos is to make everything the same. We can eliminate chaos by making everything standardized. Everything absolutely the same. But what if there is actually unity and diversity? And what if that phrase, which may sound a little politically correct, isn't actually politically correct. What if it's biblical? And what if the politically correct people are just riffing off of scripture? 
What if that's just a cheap way of understanding the richness of what God is saying, which is, yes, I created each one of you unique, and that is beautiful and perfect. It can also talk about eternal truths and absolute truths of moral and ethical and various means of behavior and interacting with God and at the same time not deny the uniqueness of who you are. Christianity has that opportunity. It's actually one of the reasons that it has been able to transcend so many cultures is that the gospel is not about a culture. It's about a kingdom that transcends all of the subcultures that are created in the world. It was interesting. I was watching uh, little bits of this wild, wild country uh, documentary about the Rajneeshis out in uh, eastern Oregon and Antelope back in the 80s. I knew that story only because my Uncle Richard and Aunt Roberta were here, and so we kind of paid attention to what was going on. Interesting thing, right? And I'm sure that it was edited a certain way to make certain folks look less inviting. But a lot of the folks who lived in the area, who expressed good Christian values, expressed a couple of things repeatedly. Fear of people who were different. And the fear of a new religion and that religion being imposed on them. Now, the sarcastic part of me thought that if I was a uh, Warm Springs Indian or since it happened in Wasco County, a Wasco, Wasco Indian, hearing them complain about people coming in and changing their religions and change was would have been hilarious. Like I would have just been greatly amused by their concerns. Uh, we want our country back. Wascos are going, yes, we would like our country back too. Um, we want things to stay the way they've always been. We're afraid of what they're doing. Now, I'm not suggesting that anything that cult did was a terribly good idea. I am suggesting that as Christians, our response to uniqueness and difference should not be fear. The Pentecost seems to be in some way embracing the reality that in one spirit I can be at peace with you in your unique tongue and culture. That there's not one way to do it. That imposing a monoculture on the world is actually not what Christianity is about. And one of the challenges that when we confuse culture and kingdom is that we end up not bringing the gospel, but we do end up with colonialism, which is the challenge of several missionary movements. As we exported a certain culture that had the gospel, yet required a certain language to be spoken, which was English, our Jesus that we brought and put on the walls was white, and we imported a culture rather than the kingdom, and that is when things get confusing, because then when we encounter the other and they speak a different language and they act in different ways, now we think our religion is being threatened because we've confused our culture with our faith. What if it's not our faith that is being challenged, but the fact that we have confused our culture with what God is doing and that there is great richness in the unity we have with the Spirit? And so we have unity in diversity. And then finally, our lives become the translation. Now, what I mean by that is when we look at this text, it is they come out, they begin to speak to people in their own language, and they're exuberant, right? The reason that there's some concern about 
the use of alcohol is not just because they're speaking different dialects, which may have sounded like people slurring. I think I've told the story one time when I was in Greek, second level Greek in seminary, and something had happened to a verb, and there was like one letter left from the original root. And I asked my Greek professor, Dr. Yarbrough, who has a wicked sense of humor and knew me pretty well, I said, what, how, what happened to this word? It's highly irregular. And he said, well, there's a long PhD explanation that you're not smart enough to understand. So he knew me well. He said, but for EC, let me put this in your uh, wheelhouse so you can understand it. It's kind of the effect of olive oil, sun, and wine on the Greek language. Which basically translates, I had to figure out how a Greek first century person would slur their words. And so there's no doubt that some of the dialects would have sounded to people like people were slurring their words, like they were sort of destroying the language. But to others, it was the exuberance of what was happening. These people were thrilled. The Holy Spirit had been poured out. They were rushing out in the exuberance and the power of the Spirit. And it was, it appeared to be chaotic. Right? We have sometimes the challenge of seeing emotional exuberance as chaos, as out of control. Again, that may be more a cultural perception than it is a reality. There's no indication that Scripture itself indicates that strong emotional responses is a sign of chaos or a lack of control. Exuberance being in the presence of God, being filled with the Spirit, is something that we should not squelch. Their lives became part of the translation of what happened. And as they come out into the streets and they begin to preach the gospel and will follow through the entire book of Acts, their lives become the explanation, the translation of what was spoken on this grand day when the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was their lives and their exuberance, the way that they had been transformed. We'll hear things later in the, in, in the book of Acts. They took mark that these people had been with Jesus. There's something about being with Jesus and present in the Holy Spirit that begins to affect our lives in such a way that we become the translation of what is being preached by Peter and each one of the 120 as they poured out into the streets. The question is, for us, not how do we manufacture any of those feelings, not how we try and uh, manufacture means by which exuberance or miraculous events happen. But it is the reality of recognizing that because of the Holy Spirit and because of what Jesus has done, because of what the book of Acts tells us are the normal activities of Christ's church, we can begin to ask ourselves the question, when we feel defensive in our world as it changes, and in our particular country and our culture, where other cultures come in a unique way that has not happened in the world really since the Roman Empire, where so many nationalities end up in the same cities and all of the different cultures and dialects that intermingle, and the chaos that that seems to bring, and yet the harmony the creativity, and the amazing artistic and literary power, the creative ways in which architecture and finance and all things are generated out of that 
unity and diversity, that bringing so many people together, it's what has made in some ways this country the most amazing country on the planet. It is because of that diversity in unity. And yet as the culture continues to change, we are always wrestling with what happens when that next group comes in. I in no way mean to make a political statement. What I do mean to make is a statement about how believers interact with those who come. Countries pass laws and do things to defend themselves. That's what happens in their cultures, but we're a part of a kingdom that transcends. We don't need to fear those dialects and those languages. We don't need to wonder if God's work is going to continue. We got to ask ourselves the question more than once, are we celebrating as Pentecost does the individual communities? Or do we find ourselves unnerved by that and wanting the comfort of the familiar and the comfort of our own and because we may have the power to enforce it, the expectation of unanimity and sameness in the communities in which we live. It's only by the Holy Spirit that there can be unity. Human beings cannot manufacture this. It is a work of God. It's why, it's interestingly enough, why it is those places where the kingdom of God has been most present that one sees the most diversity over time because the kingdom encourages it because the kingdom is creative, because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of creativity and differentiation and uniqueness. It cannot be spirit-filled and look all the same. By definition, the spirit hovered over it until it was created in its richness and diversity. And there is a unanimity and a sameness until the spirit comes and then the richness and creativity of God is exemplified and we become the translation of what it means to be filled by the spirit of creation itself because life now spreads and not death. That's the hope. That's the power. That's what Peter's going to have to encounter. It's what Paul's going to have to encounter and it doesn't come easily and yet it is where the spirit takes us. No fear, but just the exuberant joy of learning what the Spirit has done and learning the unique people that the Spirit has manifest Himself in, that we might rejoice with them in a God who is creative and unique and delights to be the fire within His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you. For the richness of the culture in which we stand, the art, the history, the science. But Lord, may we see clearly how it is that you would continue to grow and stretch us to both honor those who have gone before, Lord, and look to the future, how we might be bridges, how we might joyously participate in the diversity and the uniqueness of your world. Lord, thank you that you are a God who works through process, is patient with us, and is confident in his creation. In Christ's name, amen.